Flushing turns into a total zoo when the Yanks, Giants, Jets, and Mets all share Shea Stadium, the first time four pro sports teams had ever done it. This is one of those interesting scenarios here where you have Shea Stadium, uh, and we all remember Shea Stadium kind of being a dump those last few years, but for a while, Shea Stadium was not just the center of New York City sports, but you can make the argument sports in this country. You have four teams playing here, uh, first time ever in U.S. sports history where you have four teams sharing the same stadium, and none of them are really that good, to be honest with you. The Mets were 82-70, and 70. The, the Yankees were kind of on the upswing at this point, but they only had 83 wins. They didn't make the playoffs. Uh, the Giants were unforgettable. The Jets weren't that good. I think the interesting thing that you want to remember about this deal with Shea is that the Jets and the Mets called Shea Stadium home. The Yankees and the Giants never belonged there. They were out of place to begin with, and all it did was enhance the sour taste in their fans' mouths because their teams weren't that good anyway. And on top of that, they're playing where the Jets and the Mets played. The Mets, the Yankees that year, the Giants and the Jets, they waved one flag, the white flag, because they were all so horrible. They basically rolled over and folded for all of their adversaries that came into Shea Stadium. Maybe the worst decision ever made with all four teams in that stadium because it was miserable. I didn't, didn't care who, which fan you were. It was just a miserable year. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, gang, how is it going? My name is Tim Hanlon, and uh, you're you're back again. Thanks so much for coming back uh, to our little podcast. We call it Good Seats Still Available, our curious little journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. And uh, we're uh, going to uh, sort of veer back into the uh, to the genre of uh, arenas and stadia uh, in our little journey this week with our uh, our guest Brent Topel, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, an interesting little anecdote, a little uh, asterisk, if you will, in the history uh, of New York City uh, metropolitan area sports. And uh, we take you back to uh, the uh, the summer, and then later the fall of 1975. And the place, uh, as you heard uh, uh, hinted at in our little uh, little intro there uh, from the documentary that aired on uh, Sports uh, New York SNY uh, a couple of years back, uh, we're going to be talking about Shea Stadium in 1975, a place and a time uh, when uh, not one, not two, not three, but four professional sports franchises inhabited that one building. Uh, it was uh, an interesting confluence of time and events. Uh, and yes, the uh, Mets and the Jets, obviously the uh, major tenants of Shea Stadium, were joined by their crosstown rivals, the Yankees and the Giants, uh, during the course of 1975 in a, uh, uh, I know, a perfect storm of, uh, of situation uh, that brought all of those teams uh, together playing in one place, that being Shea Stadium. Not necessarily the most... Uh, I don't know, modern or well-regarded, uh, architecturally marvelous uh, stadiums ever built. Uh, but in 1975, and an interesting time in New York City history as well, not necessarily for uh, the best of reasons, the uh, only game in town, literally, for all four of these professional franchises was to play at Shea. And uh, we're going to get into that with Brett. Uh, he was written a book, a very interesting little uh, 
uh, uh, story about uh, this uh, little forgotten uh, uh, time in New York City sports history and, and in, a, in, a, in a building uh, that is uh, certainly loved, but but uh, not necessarily uh, always revered by uh, by people who inhabited it. Uh, that being Shea Stadium. The book is called When Shea Was Home, the story of the 1975 Mets, Yankees, Giants, and Jets. And uh, if you're wondering at home if this qualifies as uh, uh, fitting our little genre, well, yeah, sure. Shea Stadium doesn't exist anymore. And uh, that, as far as I'm concerned, uh, fits our little uh, forgotten sports uh, genre. So there, uh, I think you're going to enjoy this uh, conversation. I learned a bunch of tidbits. I grew up in the New York metropolitan area. I uh, I fancy myself as a football and baseball fan uh, of the Mets, uh, not as much the Jets, but certainly very aware of them and their stories and uh, their headlines during my uh, my childhood. But I will tell you, uh, there are a bunch of things that I learned in this conversation. I thought I knew everything uh, about New York sports, especially from my childhood. And I encourage you to listen to our conversation with Brett Topel uh, coming up about the Shea Stadium, a Circa 75. Interesting stuff coming your way uh, momentarily. Uh, we want to remind you, of course, that uh, one of the best ways, aside from rating and reviewing us wherever you find this show, it doesn't really matter where, certainly Apple Podcasts slash iTunes, not a bad place, but any of the places where you're uh, uh, able to give us some stars and some love, some commentary, uh, that's always a good way and an inexpensive way, hell, a cheap and, and free way to show some love for the show. But, but if you want to go that one extra mile, and uh, help us keep our lights on and uh, all these great stories coming to you each and every week. Uh, why don't you partake for, of uh, one of our uh, great sponsors uh, who've got great stuff and it's all relevant to uh, this great little genre that uh, we're digging into each and every week here on uh, on Good Seats Still Available. One, of course, is sportshistorycollectibles.com. Uh, and uh, that's the place for all kinds of great memorabilia. I suspect you will find uh, memorabilia from the 1975 Mets or Yankees or Jets, or as we'll talk about, uh, the New York football giants. If you remember, 1975 was uh, the year of the sort of forgotten logo of the sort of disco era. NY logo on their helmets and that never it came and went. Uh, it was never to be uh, repeated again. And it only occurred uh, during the 1975 season of the New York football giants. Uh, I'm not sure, but it's worth a look at sportshistorycollectibles.com to see if any of those things, uh, memorabilia from that year of the Giants, and, and for that matter, the Mets, the, the, the Yankees, or the, or the Jets of that year, uh, or any year for that matter, are all there for you probably to find. Uh, and if it's not there this week, well, wait till next week or the week after. Uh, you never know what you might find at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Always new stuff uh, being uploaded there. And uh, make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Uh, for 15% off all your purchases when you uh, go and uh, take part in the wares there at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Uh, not to be outdone, of course, is old, excuse me, oldschoolshirts.com, he says. Not so easily. Oldschoolshirts.com, great distressed logo wear uh, from teams and leagues uh, no longer with us or previously incarnated, uh, but also uh, other things in pop culture, whether they be uh, old uh, malls, shopping malls of, of yore, or perhaps some radio stations and some iconic call letters. Uh, those are there uh, as well. There's all a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, new uh, prints and new uh, uh, designs coming up there just about almost every every other week. Uh, and at oldschoolshirts.com, you can use a promo code there uh, and use that promo code GOODSEATS uh, at that site, and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases at oldschoolshirts.com. Lots of great 
uh, all uh, stuff, uh, especially in the realm of sports. You're going to love their stuff. And uh, P.F. Wilson and friends in Cincinnati uh, are uh, really good at what they do. Uh, give them a, a look, give them a click, and uh, give them a purchase, will you? And use that promo code GOODSEATS at oldschoolshirts.com. All right, last and not, but uh, and certainly not least, uh, our friends at 503 Sports out in Portland, Oregon, the beautiful Pacific Northwest. 503 Sports, you can find them at 503-sports.com or 503-sports.com. Your choice sells the same thing. Uh, they fancy themselves, and we obviously uh, underline and agree with that, is the as the king of throwbacks. And uh, as you're going to see uh, in the weeks and months to come, uh, beyond sort of the logo wear t-shirt stuff, which they do quite well as well, uh, they also are very, very into the idea of creating or recreating uh, some of the great jerseys and uniforms uh, of the teams and leagues that no longer exist anymore. And um, in particular, uh, if you're a fan of uh, some of the uh, long forgotten or oft forgotten football leagues like the USFL, perhaps the XFL or the vaunted World League of American Football, the precursor to NFL Europe, if you remember that from the 1990s or so. Hell, even the XFL, the original version, uh, obviously coming back next year. Uh, but uh, you will be amazed surprised and delighted to know that uh, a number of those teams, the World Football League, too, for that matter, for God's sakes, uh, have been remembered lovingly, uh, not all the teams, but I'm sure you could request some and the, uh, they would uh, uh, certainly uh, give that a pursuit uh, to create uh, some new ones. But uh, they've got a whole bunch of, uh, of team uh, uniforms that they have crafted and created uh, from the photography of the past, and uh, uh, they've done it lovingly so. Small batches uh, they are uh, hard to find. They are hard to uh, uh, to uh, to get, and uh, there's only a limited quantity. Um, and all those at 503 Sports, give those a go. Give those a, a look. Uh, I think you're going to find at least one of those that's going to be really cool for your uh, for your wardrobe, and uh, you're going to amaze and impress your friends, especially given the limited quantities. Uh, they are rare and going to be rare indeed. Make sure when you're there at 503 dash or 503 sportscom that you also use that promo code seats. S-E-A-T-S, and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there. That's 503 Sports. Find them at 503-sports.com, 503-sports.com, your choice. Thank you so much to them, uh, to all of our sponsors, and to you for considering them and hopefully making a couple of purchases once in a while to help us uh, keep our little show going. And we appreciate it to no end. And we appreciate you listening to no end. Well, at least to the end of this show. Why not? Uh, our interview coming up right now with uh, Brett Topel and uh, our discussion about the uh, the 1975 seasons, plural, of the four teams that inhabited Shea Stadium. Here is our chat just from a couple of weeks ago. This is a fascinating uh, little uh, adventure uh, for me, not only the pie's particular topic. I grew up in the New York metropolitan area myself, northern New Jersey, in, in, in fact, had enough of a uh, an exposure to Shea Stadium over the uh, over that time. It was not uh, immediately close. I mean, New Jersey, right? You know, Yankee Stadium and Shea were these sort of you know journeys that uh, one had to take. Uh, but you know, my first football game ever was a New uh, New York Jets game against the uh, the New England Patriots uh, back in the day. And uh, the you know uh, the you know my first baseball game was uh, a Yankee game. But my second one and the second two or three games were Met games. Um, you know, so some very interesting and uh, uh, memorable uh, uh, events in my sort of uh, Shea Stadium uh, background. But let's uh, get into uh, before we get into the story, which I think is 
really interesting and, and kind of a really good example of some of the kinds of things we'd like to isolate and sort of uh, delve into uh, on this little show. Give us a little bit of background about you and how this uh, story of or this slice of uh, Shea Stadium's history uh, came onto your radar and uh, enough to, you know, compel you to uh, to commit it to writing. Sure. Well, it was an idea that I first came up with in about 2012, going a few years back. And um, I came across the story and, and, and found it fascinating because, I mean, these days, you're, there's not even two teams sharing a stadium, let alone three or four. Um, it seemed like such, such a bizarre story. And I figured that people who were uh, young enough didn't know that it, it, it had ever happened. And people that were older might have forgotten that it had happened. So um, I started doing some research, realized there was very little written on it. And, uh, you know, it was something that I had always wanted to write something about Shea Stadium. To your point, it's the stadium that I grew up going to um, with my dad and my mom and my grandparents. And um, uh, I always wanted to write something about Shea. And this, you know, that combined with this story, uh, you know, became what it ended up, hap- ended up happening for me. So uh, a lot of this uh, story, we're kind of circling around the year 1975 uh, in Shea Stadium's history for those outside the New York metropolitan area or uh, who were just, you know, uh, living under a rock at that time. Um, Last night, literally, we have not dropped the episode yet. We will soon. Uh, We had a very good conversation about the AFL version of the Jets uh, with a guy named Bob Letterer who's got a new book out about called uh, Beyond Broadway Joe, where he kind of delves into the team of that year and a little bit of before and how it got that way, but not from sort of the lens of like Joe Namath being all things and, and that, but uh, a recognition that there was a whole team, you know, uh, and support staff around him that uh, were arguably neglected and, and not sort of given as much, uh, uh, much in the way of props uh, as that, uh, that magical season of 68 into 69, you know, culminated in the, in the uh, Super Bowl uh, win in that year. But um, one of the things that sort of came out of that, which I was, unaware of right was this um and i guess this dates back to the the beginning days of this stadium right uh and we've talked about the continental league and ended up that beginning the the new york mets and getting their franchise in 62 and, and the building of shea um it's my understanding and maybe this is a good place to start is that um you know the mets kind of held sway for whatever reason whether it was contractually or otherwise around scheduling right where the jets were uh, for most of the years in that stadium, pretty much the second-class citizen, so to speak, having to revolve around the Mets' schedule first. And I, I'm wondering if that's an interesting place to start, maybe some of the seeds of like how this all came to be in 75, uh, in particular the two teams that already existed in that stadium, the Mets and the uh, Jets. Well, I think you're right. And I, I think it was a, an interesting dynamic because – you know, the stadium was, was built, um, you know, it was going to be built uh, by Robert Moses for originally for the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was trying to get Walter O'Malley to do anything to not go out west. And uh, he wanted the Dodgers to play at uh, what became Shea Stadium. And, of course, uh, as we know, O'Malley said, uh, you know, if, if I'm going to play in Queens, I might as well go to Los Angeles, something along those lines. So, um, you know, he wasn't having it. So when when the Mets, uh, as you you know mentioned, the, you know, the whole Continental League thing happened and then, Bill Shea got the, the team to, to stay and, and be a part of the National League um, in 62. You know, when they built that the state, Shea Stadium in 64, it was really the Mets stadium, um, and they were, the, they were the home team. Now, the fact that the Jets came along, um, as you mentioned, they were an AFL team, so they were not, you know, I think history would have treated them a little differently if they were an NFL team at that point. 
but you know they were you know originally the the New York Titans and event then you know becoming the New York Jets and you know to a man you're correct the, the Mets were always the primary tenants in that building um, and the Jets were um, you know you know you said that you use the term second class citizens and I think that's that's kind of the, the way it happened and uh, um, you know I, I don't think when the Jets left Shea you know uh, in the early 80s that uh, that you know that was a, a big surprise or that anybody really noticed uh, because. Um, you know, other than the fact that, you know, the Jets and the Mets played there uh, all those years, it was really always considered uh, the Mets ballpark. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess the reason why I would want to maybe start there is only because the, um, you know, before we start layering in uh, other teams that were a temporary uh, inhabitants of Shea during this this year, um, you know, just maybe to sort of dig in a little bit, the yeah, it's my understanding. I, I Again, I, you know, I learn every, uh, learn every time I have a conversation uh, on this show, which is, I guess, partially why I do it, um, is the uh, the the extent to which the Jets had to uh, change and uh, uh, move their schedule around to accommodate uh, somewhat open ended. Now, in the case of the Mets, schedule you know most of which you know tended to end on time, i.e., no playoffs. Uh, but in a couple of years, of course, you know when the Mets got hot, uh, it did make a difference because it meant that the Jets um, contractually could not uh, be playing during the time that the Mets were still, quote-unquote, in season, right? So, ironically, you know, you want to be rooting for your uh, your your co-tenant, right, as a sort of a, you know, as a, a civic, uh, you know, a booster and, uh, and and cheerleader for one's own, uh, uh, you know, uh, co-occupants. But um, in many respects, I could see the Jets actually wishing the worst on the Mets, right, so that they get their damn season going. Um, yeah, no, but- abs- abs- absolutely, you're correct. Yeah, it feels to me that that tension was is kind of an interesting starting point to this conversation because you already had two teams that ostensibly, you know, were kind of ha- had a bit of friction uh, over the years and for many years as their seasons overlapped, sometimes uh, gently and sometimes actually uh, quite uh, substantially. Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm not sure how much and, and, and you know, people who have studied the, the Jets in more depth uh during their AFL years might have a, a better answer for this, but I don't know that the friction was, um, you know, as outwardly uh, evident as, uh, as it, it might be in today's uh, culture. I mean, um, the Jets, you know, didn't, you know, they were playing in the AFL and, and that was considered, you know, a secondary league. So, you know, it was, they could not play any home games until the Mets were done with their season, uh, as you mentioned, and, and that never changed really. I mean, um, and it go, went right up until 1975 that, you know, when both football teams were playing there, and I don't want to jump ahead, but neither, neither of them could play until the Mets and Yankees were done. So it really did put a, a, a crimp into the Jets scheduling and into the NFL scheduling, originally the AFL and then, of course, the NFL scheduling. Um, but, yeah, there was, there was always that, you know, um, the Mets had, you know, uh, if, if you want to call it, you know, a, a nicer locker room. I don't think the, any of the clubhouses at Chase Stadium were, were certainly sta- not state of the art, but the Jets were relegated to their own, you know, locker room. They, they didn't get, you know, the, the Mets facility. So um, there were always uh, one and, you know, one A, if that, um, at Shea. Well, all right. So uh, with that as sort of a, a little bit of a, a, a background, let's maybe get more into um – you know, the 1975, but actually, really, I think the story even starts a year before, right? Because you now have, so let's talk about 1974, because that's literally the first year uh, where uh, the Yankees uh, were in need of a playing uh, facility. Uh, Maybe you want to get into some of the reasons as to why 
and and the prelude that that set in uh, the tone for for uh, for the next year in '75 when it got really crazy, huh? Sure, and, uh, and and I'll keep people in suspense, but the, 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 the seeds were originally planted actually in 1972 when the Giants announced that they were going to be building a facility in New Jersey. But we'll, we'll put that on hold for a second because you're right. The, the Yankees had announced that they wanted to do this, this major renovation to Yankee Stadium, and, and it really was not you know, uh, a refurbishing. If you, if you look at, uh, really look at what they did at Yankee, you know, at Yankee Stadium during the 74 and 75 seasons, other than the actual out side facade, they ripped the entire stadium apart and, and built, in essence, a new stadium within. So there was no way that the Yankees were going to be able to play there uh, for at least two seasons. And um, the Mets did not want uh, the Yankees there. Uh, there was no question about that. But, the, you know, the city of New York owned the stadium and there wasn't really an, uh, an option for the Mets. They couldn't say no. Um, so, you know, it was it was a, a fait accompli that the Yankees would be there for the 74 and 75 season. The Mets, you know, were coming off in 1974. They were just a year removed from being National League champions uh, and playing in the World Series and losing in the World Series in seven games. So it was not like the Mets were irrelevant at the time. Um, it, far from it. They were, you know, um, you know, like I said, just one year removed from the World Series. Uh, the Yankees uh, hadn't been there in a while. Um, they were building a team, and by 75, they would get better. But in 74, you know, the Yankees and Mets and Jets all shared uh, what was a very crowded, crowded Shea Stadium. How how did the scheduling uh, between these two teams in '74 actually work? Right, I guess I'm guessing the Mets because it's their home stadium kind of got scheduled first. But I'm just curious as to how Major League Baseball and the and Shea dealt with scheduling uh, two teams. Uh, I think probably. I guess in the modern era, it probably was kind of the first time it's ever happened. Yeah, and it was it was an everyday affair, right? So there, there was very few days off, and um, and keeping in mind that we didn't have to worry about football yet, because as we said earlier, the Jets were not going to be allowed to play there until baseball season was over. And uh, to your point, um, you know, neither the Mets or the Yankees uh, at that point were were really playoff teams, so the, the season was going to be over. You know, in, in late September, the baseball season didn't seem to drip over as, as late as it does now. Um, so by October, you know, football could start. But um, Major League Baseball had to go and be very diligent. And I don't know that they gave the Mets priority um, necessarily. I did do a lot of research into the scheduling of the games. And, um, you know, one of the things, you know, one of the key people in, the, in this book is uh, the head groundskeeper for the Mets and you know, at Chase Stadium, who was a gentleman by the name of Pete Flynn, who passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, the, the field never got a day off. And at that point, and I guess we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about the field conditions and the playing conditions, you know, Shea Stadium did not have an underground sprinkler system. It was the infield was hard like a rock. The outfield didn't drain. Um, so, you know, by the time football season rolled around, the, the field at Shea Stadium was in really bad shape because of that schedule uh, of, of literally playing every single day. So, in essence, there was pretty much baseball just about every day during the spring and summer, right? There was, and, and there were even other things going on because uh, you have to remember that Yankee Stadium, because it was Yankee Stadium, hosted a lot of other things such as um, the New York City High School Baseball Championships, such as uh, Grambling College Football played an exhibition game there or one of their games there every year. So, 
when the Yankees moved over to Shea for those two years, everything that Yankee Stadium hosted moved along to Shea Stadium those two years. So, um, you know, the, my book obviously deals specifically about 1975, so I, I, can, I can speak to those, some of those specific instances. But both in 74 and 75, it, what, it was more, believe it or not, than just Yankees and Mets and, uh, you know, the everyday schedule. And it was all the other things that came along with it. So you're mentioning groundskeepers and stuff. So when the Yankees were playing and when the Mets were playing, I mean, was there, was there, I mean, was it, did the Yankees essentially, and I'm sure this bleed into 75 as well, but did, did the Yankees have to kind of defer to the the groundskeepers and the, you know, and the, and the folks that managed Shea Stadium or were they allowed to import their own folks or maybe inject a bit of their own, I don't know, Yankee-ness uh, into the proceedings? So from everything I could understand, there were two separate grounds crews, um, and the Yankees did have a head groundskeeper. But um, Pete Flynn, um, and he was named head groundskeeper in 75. He had been with the Mets since uh, 62 in the polo grounds when he came over um, as, as a young, you know, somebody who uh, knew about, you know, tending a garden and stuff and, and got a job as a groundskeeper in the polo grounds. So by 75, he was the head groundskeeper. 74, uh, was the, you know, he was still on the, on the crew. And there were, the Yankees did have their own staff and their own grounds crew that came over from Yankee Stadium, but I think they always sort of de- deferred to the Mets staff having being that that was their building. And um, how? Um, yeah, this, so that's interesting. And and so all right, let's, so that's the baseball thing. So that's kind of you know the scene set of '74 as as a, as a prelude to '75. But let's uh, let's back up a little bit then and, and get into sort of the football part of the equation because. You're mentioning back uh, a few years earlier, sort of this announcement that the New York football giants were uh, looking to uh, find and or build their own uh, new stadium on their own. So maybe a little bit of uh, background on their somewhat peripatetic uh, journey for the years prior to 1975 uh, in the lead up to what eventually became Giant Stadium. Sure. So you mentioned about scheduling and the Yankees. Uh, I'm sorry, the Giants always felt that they were being treated as second-class citizens to the Yankees. So the Giants um, wanted no part of staying at Yankee Stadium unless they were going to be given, you know, quote-unquote, you know, equal billing. Um, And that was really never going to happen. I mean, it was Yankee Stadium after all. So in 1972, uh, Wellington Mara, the owner of the Giants, uh, announced that he was going to move his team to New Jersey to this uh, you know, great big facility, which was going to be set in East Rutherford, New Jersey, on what ended up being called the Meadowlands. Um, but that it would take, you know, several years to to build and because uh, it was going to be this big structure um, and they would have to build it on top of a swamp. And it was going to take a lot of time so that they would play out their their time at Yankee Stadium. And the mayor of New York City at the time was uh, uh, was was Mayor Wagner, and uh, he wanted no part of it. He was basically furious that the New York Football Giants were leaving New York and New York City, and he basically said, "See ya, get out," um, and and more or less evicted the Giants from Yankee Stadium. So they had no place to play, and ended up in 1973 and 1974 playing up uh, at the Yale Bowl in Connecticut on you know in a college football facility. Um, which seems unbelievable today, you know, today to think the New York Giants are playing um, at the Yale Bowl, although today's New York Giants probably wouldn't sell out the Yale Bowl, but that's, that notwithstanding, um, I, I, they had a very bad time uh, up in, in Connecticut. Uh, they were away from their families. They had no fans up there. 
They won, I think, uh, two or three games the entire three-year period and uh, and really needed to uh, have another option. And then, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to, uh, to, to jump ahead, but um, I guess we're at the point now where, you know, there was a new, ma- new mayor in New York City. The mayor had become uh, Abraham Beam, uh, who was friends with Wellington Mara. And he said, listen, there's one more year before you're going to go to New Jersey. Why don't you come back and uh, play a season at Shea Stadium? And in the past, Mara had, had scoffed at the idea of playing at Shea, uh, didn't want any part of it. But um, it was kind of an olive branch by, by Mayor Beam, and, and Mara took it. And uh, alas, four teams at Shea Stadium. So the Mets had to be apoplectic at all this, right? Because they didn't own the stadium, right? This is really that of the of 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 the New York uh, City government, right? That pretty much. So it seems Correct. like, in many respects, their hands were tied. You know, not only with the Yankees situation for two years, but then adding two foot. I mean, adding another football team on top of already probably an overlap you know, situation between their, their co-inhabitants, the Jets. I mean, is, is the Mets management like just, just nuts over all this stuff or are they kind of like, well, yeah, I can't imagine they would just take this sort of sitting down. They were nuts over all of it. (laughs) They were were absolutely furious. They, they wanted no part of it. They, they didn't want the Yankees there. They, and I'm sure quite frankly, if they had their way, they didn't even want the Jets there. Um, when the Giants became uh, a legitimate option and it was going to go from two to three to now four teams at their stadium. And remember, as we said way back, you know, they always considered this their stadium. It wasn't just that it was viewed as their stadium. They considered it their stadium. Um, this was a baseball stadium that was built basically to retrofit the football. It, you know, it was one of the first stadiums to have, uh, uh, you know, low-level seats that were on tracks that could kind of, curve in so that to change the seating configuration for football, but this was a baseball stadium and, and it was built as a giant horseshoe. It was not built for football. So they didn't, the Mets didn't want anybody else uh, as tenants. And and that's, you know, how they kind of viewed it. They kind of thought of everybody else as these tenants that were squatting in their, in their stadium. And, you know, by 75, I think they threw their hands up. They knew they had no control over it. They knew that after 75, the giants and the Yankees were leaving and it, so they had to get through the one season. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say they, they grin and bear it. They, they bared it. Did they, did they give it any kind of a, a compensation or recompense or, or some other concessions, either by the city or by any of the leagues uh, for, for, you know, triple or triple hosting, if you will, these other teams? Yeah, I, I didn't find any of that. And I think part of it is the Mets really had no say. Uh, you mentioned it, you know, a, a few minutes ago. The Mets had no say in any of this. Didn't own the stadium. They didn't own the land that the stadium was on. And, you know, in 1975, sports was very different. I mean, the, the teams that are building these, you know, multi-billion dollar uh, stadiums and that own their own stadiums these days, you know, that didn't exist in 1975. This was, this was owned by New York City. And, and, and New York City in 1975 wasn't even close to the kind of place New York City is today. It was, it was a very, da- you know, downtrodden, um, dilapidated city, and, uh, which was in huge financial issues. So, there was no, you know, no one was going to build a new stadium for one of these teams. The, you know, Yankee Stadium was going to be finished after the 75 season, as I said. Uh, they were hoping and, and really wishing and keeping fingers crossed that the Meadowlands was going to be ready for the 76 football season, um, which it was. And, you know, going back to normal, I mean, after having four teams, I think the Mets were, were, were fine with having just them and the Jets because, uh, you know, that, that felt like they were, they were all alone again. 
if I remember correctly, and this is these are you know hazy childhood memories, right? But uh, if uh, the Shea Stadium's uh, uh, setup was, how can I best put it? Not sort of necessarily the easiest to transform from one sport to another, right? Because there was uh, the way it was sort of constructed, and you're mentioning or hinting at uh, uh, some tracks, I guess, for. Uh, uh, stands that sort of would come in and out depending on whether it was a baseball or football configuration. Um, how difficult or straightforward uh, was or is, was, sorry, the uh, the transformation process for, you know, changing uh, from one sport to another? Not that that was common, right, because of the overlap situation, but I, I got to think it had to enter into some kind of uh, thinking in terms of like how quickly or not uh, events could be turned around in time for either another tenant or hell, I, I would imagine there's some other things beyond these four teams, like a concert or two once in a while. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and at 75, there wasn't as much uh, extra things on the, the agenda other than those Yankee uh, things I had mentioned. I mean, in, in, in you know, uh, years in subsequent years, there was everything at Chase Stadium. I mean, the Pope was there in the late 70s. Uh, they even had, they had uh, wrestling there. They had obviously concerts there they even had and this is one of my favorites that i mentioned in the book they even had the ice capades there once so i'm not even sure how that worked but the, they did have the ice capades outside of chase stadium um and to your point you know they did not have to transform it back and forth that often because once it was football it was football for the for the most part they did have tracks that um the, you know the field level seats at chase stadium did kind of curve out to line what would be the sidelines of a football field, but it was it was still not a good place to watch a football game because you know if you if you know what Chase Stadium looks like or if you could picture it in your mind, it was a, a giant horseshoe with an open you know from from the foul line to the foul line in you know on a baseball field it was open in the outfield you know other than a scoreboard and you know some bleachers out there so because of that the wind was just brutal uh, for football in the colder months is the winter months of Shea Stadium with the wind coming off the water. Shea Stadium was built uh, right on the edge of Flushing Bay. Um, so, you know, and the field conditions were, were just absolutely hard, for, horrid for football. There was no grass uh, left uh, for the most part in 75 by the time the Jets and Giants kicked off the season. And it was hard like a rock and it was dusty and it was, it, it rained, it was swampy. And, um, you know, I'm not sure transforming the stadium back and forth was, was even as much of an issue as the fact that it just wasn't a great place to watch a football game. All right, all right, calm down. We'll be back to our conversation in just a minute. Uh, but uh, I do want to uh, pay some bills around here, you know, and um, look, we're uh, we're guilty as uh, as anyone, probably more so than anybody of uh, of living in the past. Right. Uh, you know, the show is about nostalgia and looking back and trying to remember and unearth uh, things about teams and leagues that uh, have come and gone, shall we say. And, uh, you know, it, that's uh, it's good. It's good to learn from history and, and remember some of those things. But look, you can't live in the past. Right. you got to keep moving forward. Life goes on. And uh, look at all the sports and teams and uh, leagues that we follow. Uh, you know, there's uh, just so much excitement out there. We got a fantasy team or two or ten. Uh, you got sports talk out, the, out there. You, you know, we were talking about modern day sports uh, as it uh, got built up on the uh, the shoulders of history in this little podcast. And uh, my guess is that uh, more than a fair share of you listeners out there 
want to find a decent place to uh, to place a little wager or two once in a while, especially when you have an inkling, you got a special feeling, uh, you think you know what's going to happen. Uh, why not make some bucks on that uh, on that little hunch? And and but well, we're here to help you, right? My bookie is the place to go. It's our brand new sponsor, and we appreciate their uh, their patronage of our little show. MyBookie.ag. Uh, that's probably the best place that I know of uh, to uh, get going and do some. Uh, do some online wagering, and you know, look—you've uh, you've been living under a rock. You recognize that uh, the courts have uh, have changed uh, over the last uh, couple of months, and the uh, the mores around uh, around gambling seems to be loosening uh, when it comes to sports gambling. And my bookie is the place to go, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Mybookie.ag uh, to uh, get set up and uh, get some uh, get some good wagers, and uh, they're good at payouts. They're good at uh, all of that. Uh, service that uh, you uh, you expect. I uh, highly recommend them. I've heard uh, nothing but good things about them. You'll see all the online reviews are uh, top-notch as well. And look, we also have you covered too. When you give them a try, use the promo code SEATS and uh, they're going to match your initial deposit dollar for dollar all the way up to a thousand bucks. So if you're looking for uh, some extra scratch to put uh, against some of your hunches and you want to get some, uh, some online uh, sports uh, bets out there. My bookie. It's the place to go. I highly recommend it. Uh, and it's mybookie.ag. Make sure you use the promo code, of course, seats. Seats uh, is the promo code. And you're going to get that dollar for dollar match uh, of your initial deposit all the way up to a thousand bucks. And uh, why not use that extra coinage, shall we say, uh, to uh, hopefully win a couple of uh, of good solid bets uh, on your uh, your first go around with my bookie, mybookie.ag. We thank them for their uh, sponsorship of our show. And now, back to our conversation. times um, during, say, the baseball season, um, obviously football a little bit more regularly scheduled on a weekly basis. Um, was there any time during the uh, during the playing of the 1974 well, season, for that matter, too? Uh, I'm wondering what conflicts there might have been, right? So rainouts and, uh, you know, making up games and the doubleheader kind of thing. And I'm just wondering if there were ever any times during those two seasons that the Yankees and the Mets had uh, to step on each other's toes and uh, you know, and and adjust their schedule. I, I got to imagine there was a bit of uh, creativity that uh, had to occur during those two seasons. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I went into the when I, when I went into the research process for this book very early on. I was absolutely fully expecting to hear from former players that it was a pain in the neck and it was a real you know pain to have uh, the Mets there or the Yankees there or vice versa. Um, and you know. Nobody really had those stories. Um, you know, I spoke to uh, Ed Crane Pool, who was, uh, you know, on the Mets since the 62 season. So by the time 75 rolled around, he was a veteran. And he said, you know, they hardly passed in the night. You know, they, 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 the, the schedules were made and, you know, they, they followed the schedules. And uh, there were days that they would practice uh, at the facility the same day because, you know, unlike football, baseball doesn't have or didn't have and still really doesn't have uh, separate, you know, training facilities uh, other than spring training. But, you know, during the season, they all just practice and take BP and fielding practice at the stadium. And there were days where the Yankees would come in uh, if they were off that day and have batting practice the, the day before a Mets home game that night. So there, there would be, you know, double, you know, double things scheduled, double dipping, if you will, um, 
And, uh, you know, it would have, you know, the, the, some of the players joked that they were expecting to see Joe Namath come in and throw some balls uh, uh, later in the afternoon as well, just to, to get warmed up as well. But, you know, I, I, as I said, I think the Jets kind of kept their difference and the, uh, their distance. And the Jets did have a, a training facility that they, they could play at. So, um, yeah, I think I don't think that there was – I know there was never a time where the Yankees and Mets played a regular season game in 74 or 75 on the same day in the same stadium. That didn't happen. Uh, that would have been kind of a cool, a cool postscript if the Mets had a day game and the Yankees had a night game. Uh, that, did, that did not happen. Um, but they did practice. Uh, there would be a day – there would be times where the Yankees or Mets would practice uh, on the field and then the other team would play that night. Yeah, ironically, um, that did happen right in uh, sometime in uh, the eighty. Uh, sorry, the nineties. Right? Wasn't there a, a case where uh, I guess the Yankees? Uh, I think it was nineteen ninety eight. Right, where the Yankees were they had to play a game uh, at Shea because there was a, a I guess a collapsed beam or something from the uh, the Yankee Stadium that day. And I think um, the Mets had a game in the evening. So I think that was actually the only time that that ever happened. Ironically, not during the two seasons where they were sharing the same facility. Exactly. Uh, there's actually, actually a funny story from that as well. Because Dallas Strawberry, who was a longtime Met, was actually on the Yankees at that time. And uh, in that game against at Shea Stadium, uh, he, he, he slammed a home run. And the Mets have this home run apple that always goes up every time they hit a home run. And someone hit the button to send the Mets home run apple up after Dallas Strawberry of the Yankees had hit the home run. So, and I believe it got about halfway up until someone realized that was probably a bad idea. And they, they hit the button and it went back down. And for those of you scoring at home, that was on uh, April 15th, 1998, that that uh, interesting asterisk in baseball history uh, happened um, at Shea. Let me ask you this. Uh, did you, um, what, how did the fans, I mean, what was the, what was the reaction, I guess, of the press and the fans uh, to, uh, this sort of factory, I guess, of 1995 at one place. Uh, I, I wonder if it was uh, uh, fun and interesting or boring or monotonous or uh, a pain, uh, or a, a challenge. I'm just curious as to how, you know, were people kind of grinning and bearing it, so to speak, like this is just a temporary thing and let's just have fun with it. What was the sort of reaction uh, to all Shea all the time that year? Well, yeah, and, and you know, and, and the attendance for both teams was very low. I mean, because the teams were not good, they did not draw well. Um, but it was what the interesting thing about fans is uh, along the way of uh, writing this book, and as I, you know, because I, I'm sure you're like this too when you when you're doing research for a podcast or for anything you're doing. You know, you talk to people and you tell them what you're doing and you get feedback, and you know, people would tell me, you know, uh, it's funny you you say talk about Shea Stadium, and I say because I remember going to a Yankee game at Shea Stadium, and I could never reconcile that. So um, the fans had, that had been there, specifically Yankee fans for Yankee games that had been there in 75, uh, almost had the fact that it had happened erased from their memory, other than they remember seeing the Yankees in a, in a strange environment. Um, I don't think, you know, the fans, uh, much like the players, never kind of interse- intersected. The, the fans uh, certainly didn't. I, one of the people I got to interview for the book is, uh, is Howie Rose, who was the Mets radio announcer, and really – uh, one of the foremost authorities, if not the foremost authority um, of, uh, of Mets history. Um, and, and he said uh, he had a, a really good line. He said he was very unhappy as a young boy uh, uh, or older, I guess I think he was in his 20s, uh, watching the Yankees play uh, at Shea Stadium. He, he said it was kind of like eating a pork chop at a bar, at a bar mitzvah. <laughs> Howie Rose, that's funny. Well, so it also, uh, I, do I have this correct as well that in 74, maybe even in 75, there was even an attempt 
or at least the question or the inquiry by the fledgling uh, New York stars of the uh, World Football League to play at Shea Stadium as well. Um, did that come up in your any of your research? That actually did not come up, but that would not surprise me because you have to remember there was no other place to play in this area. Right. There, there really wasn't. There was no, you know, there's no big time um, college football uh, team that would have been able to share a stadium with them. Um, Shea Stadium was it. It was, it was really at that point the only stadium in the New York City metropolitan area that would, you know, unless you went as far as, you know, New, New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale was. Um, but, I mean, you know, the NFL team failed there. I don't think that the, uh, the Stars would have done uh, well there. And so there weren't a lot of options. That, that, ha- that did not happen to come up in my research or in my book, but that does not surprise me at all. Yeah, and and it, it and having grown up as a Cosmos fan too, uh, that's they're also played in, into that too. That's where Randall's Island, Downing Stadium, and Randall's Island, the uh, you know the, the less than I would even say high school quality stadium, uh, interestingly uh, located you know uh, under the Triborough Bridge. There, uh, it looks yes, good on the map, absolutely. but it's a pain in the butt to get to. And once you get there, you kind of wished you weren't there. But you know when Pele came in '75, right? That was you know I'm pretty sure. I don't. I. I'm, I think I've asked a few of our cosmos, <clears throat> cosmos related guests over the, over the uh, the many months that uh, I, I'm sure that uh, inquiries were made about Shea's availability uh, in '74 and '75 when they were both at Downing Stadium. I'm sure that's exactly what happened to the Stars as well. But again, it's you. You bring up a very interesting point. I mean, this is like the middle of the 1970s, arguably. You know, some level of modern modernity and 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 you know uh, uh, culture in New York City. You know, being some of the, uh, you know the, the 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 biggest city in the country and obviously at a world stage. And here you are, right? It only has really one major facility operational, right? One's down for the count for two years. Uh, there is no giant stadium. There is no uh, you know Barclays Center. There is no you know there's no uh, there's no extra capacity anywhere. And it's it's just hard to believe that. Uh, you wonder what would have happened if something had happened to Shea during that season. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a little side note about Downing Stadium on Randall's Island. It's funny. I, I was speaking to, uh, to a gentleman by the name of Roby Young, who played for the Cosmos, I sure. believe, right after Pele, um, either right before or right after Pele. Um, and uh, he said that the field conditions at Downing Stadium were so bad that they literally spray painted the field green so that it looked like a soccer field because there was no grass there at all in a lot of spots. And he said that, that, that that's what they were dealing with. He said it was, it was bumpy and rocky, and it was, it was a terrible place to play. And you're thinking, now here comes Pele, the greatest player to ever live, playing on the, in these field conditions. Yeah, there, there's a famous story. His, uh, his inaugural game uh, in uh, the summer of 75, which was a hastily arranged exhibition, he, he was playing, and then after the first half, he came into the locker room, and he, he essentially made motions that he wanted to, to quit the team because his legs had been all green blotchy you know and and he thought he had gotten some kind of fungus and they had to tell him that it was green paint and um that's right that's right i think he laughed it off but uh you know not a happy situation but but it does speak to and you wonder right you know the wfl right had a lot of other issues and problems but you wonder you know if the stars you know who had to relocate to charlotte in midway in the season that's how comical that that league was you wonder if they had had some stability with a major league facility in a Shea or a Yankee Stadium for that matter they could have even made it um, but not to, not not to be the case right um I guess the one thing that's that's interesting to me about the 1975 adventure where you had all four of these teams playing at Shea 
Um, and again, this is based on my knowledge, and you probably have a deeper understanding of the, of the nuances here. Um, it does not seem to me that any of these four franchises, Yankees, Mets, Jets, or Giants, had anything resembling a uh, memorable season. As a matter of fact, in some cases, uh, uh, some worth uh, forgetting. Absolutely. They were all, um, for lack of a better word, they were all terrible. Um, you know, the Mets uh, were only two years removed from a World Series berth and were nothing resembling uh, a championship team. They had Tom Seaver, who had a great year that year and won a Cy Young Award. They had a couple of good hitters, Rusty Staub, who uh, we lost uh, this past year, but uh, was the first Met to ever you know, drive in 100 runs in a season. He did it that year. Um, but the Mets were... You know, in the in the early stages of what was going to be a terrible, terrible downward spiral uh, through the mid and late 1970s into the early 1980s, the Yankees were not good either. Um, they uh, had a manager, uh, Bill Verdon, who is the answer to a trivia question. He's the only manager in Yankees history to have never won a game at Yankee Stadium because he managed for 1974 and half of 1975 until he was fired midway through the season and replaced by Billy Martin. Um, in Martin's first uh, tenure with the Yankees. Uh, however, the Yankees had signed Catfish Hunter uh, before that season. So um, they were going to be on the upswing. By 76, they were, you know, American League champions. And by 77, 78, they were world champions. So they christened their new stadium uh, quite well. But in 75, they were not good um, at all. Um, and, you know, they had young, some young players like Elliot Maddox, who was a, a young phenom. Uh, they had... They had just traded Bobby Mercer because Bobby Mercer couldn't hit home runs in 1974 at Chase Stadium because um, the, the, the right field at Chase Stadium was so much further than the right field porch. I think he had two home runs all uh, in, in all of the home games in 74. So they traded him and got Bobby Bonds. Um, and things were bad for the Yankees. And the Giants and the Jets, if it's possible, were worse than the Yankees and the Mets. Uh, the Jets and the Giants were just, you know, Namath was uh, a shell of what Namath once was, although he didn't have a terrible season in 75. Um, you know, he, he played to the entire season, which was un-Namath-like for many of his years in his, during his career. And, that, you know, as I mentioned about the Giants, they were just, uh, they won five games during the season um, and were had, you know, one eye at Chase Stadium and the other eye uh, across the river. Uh, at uh, what would end up being Giant Stadium in the following year. So, um, no, as I mentioned in the very first paragraph um, of the book, uh, that 1975 certainly was not one of the most successful seasons uh, for New York sports, but it was certainly one of the oddest. I'm curious on the baseball side, did the, um, and we talked about sort of the groundskeeping thing, but I mean, did the Yankees, I mean, how much, I mean, you mentioned or hinted at maybe some of the players, but were, what do they have to do, the Yankees, in in terms of adjustments, right? Because obviously the dimensions are different, and you know their their staffing is built for at least a you know half a season that's uh, in a Yankee stadium that's a bit more cavernous and a little bit more uh, maybe intimidating them in the sort of the more cookie cutter sort of version of Shea. I mean, were there adjustments made that you could discern that the Yankees specifically uh, made? to accommodate or uh, for the differences in a Shea stadium versus a Yankee stadium. 
Well, the, the one the one big one, which I just mentioned, was was trading, you know, the beloved Bobby Mercer because uh, Mercer just was very frustrated. He couldn't hit home runs. They brought in a guy like Bobby Bonds who had speed um, to patrol, uh, you know, a, a vast outfield. I mean, Shea Stadium's outfield was huge. Uh, they had a speedy right fielder uh, by the name of Elliot Maddox. He was this young phenom, um, and uh, you know, unfortunately for Elliot Maddox. Uh, the, because the field did not drain well at, at Chase Stadium, he was playing in a swampy right field, uh, tore up his knee, and was never the same. Um, in fact, years and years later, when he actually ironically ended up playing for the Mets in the early 80s, he walked out to right field, and he told a reporter he was going out there to see if he could find his knee. So, um, and it, it's, he actually sued the city, he sued Billy Morton, he sued the Yankees, he sued the Mets. Elliot Maddox had a bad situation. So any adjustments they, they, that the Yankees made for Shea Stadium uh, certainly did not work out well for Elliot Maddox. Um, you know, other than that, I think that, you know, uh, there was not much that could be done. They did bring in, as I mentioned, uh, Jim Catfish Hunter was a premier pitcher uh, uh, in that day. And, um, you know, Shea Stadium was a good pitcher's park. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons that guys like, you know, in the sixties and seventies, guys like Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman and John Matlack had such great success because often if the balls went up, you know, between left center and right center at Shea Stadium, they weren't going out of the park. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, that hurt the Yankees in 74. And I think they, they did make some adjustments in 75 to try to alleviate that. Um, but again, they didn't want to make too many, you know, roster moves that they couldn't undo because uh, in 76, they were going back to that, you know, short right field porch. Yeah. Also on the football side, right. It also seems to me too, that, um, you know, adjustments had to be made. I, I'm not sure it's as, as, uh, as dramatic or as pronounced say on the baseball side, because there are nuances to baseball. Every park is different, right. Where football is, you know, on a standard grid and, and the grid is a grid, right. I mean, Maybe there are adjustments from, you know, the circular winds of Shea versus, say, what a Yilbol did or didn't have. Um, but it did seem to me that uh, you they had to, each team had to kind of not only account for sort of that overlap of the uh, of the baseball season those first couple of weeks, but um, it seemed to me they had to kind of jam in a lot of home games near sort of the tail end of the schedule. And I, if I'm not mistaken, it looks like that the the Giants and the Jets had to play back to back games on a couple of weekends. Uh, which, by the way, could not have been great for the turf. But, um, you know, I'm sure – do I have this right? The Giants had to play uh, two of their weekend games near the end of the season on the Saturday while the Jets had to play the, that Sunday. And and I think the Giants, because of that, lost out on being televised and some of the other goodies that come along with a regular scheduled game. Yes. You're, first of all, you're absolutely right that there were Saturday games, which was – unusual to, for the, in the first place. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, adjustments that had to be made and, and you're right. Football is, is a much more, you know, grid like sport. And you kind of, you know, you run from, from goal line to goal line. Um, but, but, but some of the challenges that the football players had with a, one of the gentlemen I got to speak to was a uh, Richard Castor, who was a all pro tight end for the jets that year. And, you know, he said, you know, Namath would be under center and, you know, kicking his legs up and literally giant chunks of whatever was left in the turf would come up. And, um, you know, it was that was actually part of the, the game plan. It's not like not game plan so much as but it was part of the, what they had to deal with was turf coming up, flying out, divots. Uh, the field was so bad. Now, again, I don't think it cost the, the Jets and Giants any games because I don't think they were the windows games that they lost anyway. But the field was in such horrendous shape by football that, um, you know, 
uh, although I didn't speak to anybody who said this, you know, straight out, I assume that, you know, plays, play calling had to be affected by the field because the field was really um, in, not in bad shape. It was almost impassable shape. I don't think in today's game they would allow a field to go, you know, an NFL team to play on the field that they ended up playing on, you know, the second half of that football season. All right. So in your investigation, as we sort of round uh, third base here, um, any uh, particular uh, uh, things of wackiness or, or, or oddities that uh, sort of occurred? I, I, last night, I, I think I stumbled onto one of them, uh, which was this, uh, <laughs> this New York Yankees uh, 21 gun salute with the Army. Uh, does that ring a bell? Yes, indeed. So the the Yankees were were it was I believe they were celebrating the the uh, either hundredth anniversary of the it was some an anniversary of the armed forces, and uh, they had a great idea that they were going to do a twenty one gun salute uh, towards center field, um, you know from center field towards the center field fence, and um, the 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 force of the blast, even though they were blanks, was so powerful that it literally blew the center field fence down, <laughs> completely down, and. Um, I spoke to uh, Marty Appel, who, of course, has written so many great Yankee books, including, you know, the, uh, the, the Thurman Munson uh, biography and Pinstripe Empire and, and so many others. And he said he just remembers having uh, there was a young PR man by the name of Barry Landers who had come up with the idea. And he was standing on the field as it happened. And he remembered looking at, well, I'm sorry, Marty Appel was a PR director. I guess Barry Landers was in charge of this this. Uh, uh, event, and he just remembers seeing Barry's face as the center field fence was literally blown down. So what happened? I mean, did they play the game, or did they have to delay the game, or did they? They postpone? did. They, they 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 did hit it. They they, they delayed it. They, they they I guess they propped the fence up as best they could. Um, I, I, I they did not want to cancel the game, and uh, by all accounts, they 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 played the game. But it was uh, it was a very embarrassing moment uh, for the Yankees, and and also for you know the everybody involved with Shea Stadium because Shea, it wasn't that in 1975 Shea Stadium was only 11 years old but it was already in pretty bad shape Shea Stadium did not age well um at all um it became an old stadium very quickly which is which is ironic because it, it had a lot of uh you know modernity that that other stadiums didn't have it was the first stadium with an electronic scoreboard uh it was the first stadium with a lot of you know these bells and whistles that other stadiums didn't have at the time, of course, by today's standards, it's, it's you know laughable. But Shea Stadium got old very fast, so this this instance was certainly a uh, you know an embarrassment to uh, to the Yankees and and to the Shea Stadium in general, the people who were there, and you know the the Mets. Uh, you know, one of the the things that the the, the Mets had was uh, they had. Uh, Old Timers Day with uh, you know Casey Stangle and Joan Payson riding around on a little chariot, um, and it wasn't necessarily an embarrassing moment, but it was just a moment of you got to wonder what's going on here. You know, it it, it wasn't necessarily uh, you know a major league product that they were putting on the field, you know, before or after games. But um, yeah, there was a lot of strange things that that went on in, in '75, and uh, you know the the blowing down of the fence was uh, probably one of the highlights or lowlights. And I think for New York Giants fans, uh, there uh, this is a little sort of uh, uh, mogul uh, or, or stub, I guess, of uh, of history as well. Is this, um, I guess, long lost uh, logo? I think it only happened for the one year. Um, it's sort of this stylized NY, you know, sort of like a, a modern sort of capital N, capital Y 
uh, logo that I don't think they ever revisited or brought back. It was almost, uh, you know, uh, I guess a one and done season kind of thing. Um, it's been much maligned, but uh, we'll have a, a picture of it. Uh, we'll put it up there on our uh, on our website and stuff. But um, I, I guess it was uh, originally designed to be somewhat neutral, knowing that uh, they were already playing a bunch of games in in Connecticut. Uh, they were now a season at Shea Stadium, which was not their home either. And then obviously going to wind up in the uh, in the wilds of uh, Nirvana in New Jersey. Um, but it's interesting, this uh, this new sort of uh, and I actually think it's a pretty cool logo. And uh, this sort of it's like a kind of like a it looks like kind of a neon NY sort of on the on the blue uh, on the blue helmet um, really didn't make it past this season. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It almost had, and, and I don't know if this even makes sense, but it almost had a disco feel to it. You know, it had, it had a, uh, like, a, like a retro before there was retro. And I'm not sure why they decided to change the logo that year. I think that part of it was they knew they were going to have to change the logo the following year because they were not going to be able to play in New Jersey and have an NY on their helmet. And, of course, they – they ended up switching to the helmets for so many years. It said Giants uh, on either side. Um, you know, in the last last uh, several years, they've went, they've gone back to the MY, um, despite still playing in New Jersey. But no one seems to really care or notice that. I guess I, I assume the people in New Jersey do, but the people in New York were okay with it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was. And, and the thing that made it interesting is that you know when, when we were preparing to you know the layout of the book, I you know I was. In, you know, involved with picking the photos uh, for the book. And we had, you know, Mets and Yankees and, and Jets and, of course, the Giants. And, you know, it was both good and bad because you could all, there were only so many photos to choose from um, because you need, we needed to have one, you know, photos with that specific NY logo. And, you know, uh, those, that team, as I said, quarterback by Craig Morton, was not uh, a team that there, there, a lot of photos survived from. Uh, that year, so uh, we did we did grab a couple of them and we made it work. But yeah, it was that's a little known fact, and um, it was one season, and it was a very strange NY. All right, so maybe the last question is uh, uh, what a, what is your? I, I suspect that you become not only uh, in the office but also just uh, on the internet and elsewhere, sort of this uh, de facto expert about 1975 and, and Shea Stadium and, and all the things. Uh, that were part of that. I, I bet you even discover stuff that people sort of share with you. Um, what of memorabilia? Uh, was there anything uh, that any of these teams did uh, to to outwardly commemorate, aside from sort of you know the the annual yearbook and that kind of stuff? Obviously, if you're a Giants fan, uh, that New York uh, logo, that one year logo, is obviously a a remembrance and uh, of that, and perhaps hard to find kind of thing. Uh, I'm just wondering if the Yankees. Uh, you know, uh, had any sort of commemoration of things or are there any special souvenirs or, or uh, memorabilia maybe out there that uh, either uh, people relish and cherish or maybe uh, wonder if there may be pieces of that are still out there, um, you know, in your, in your search and your travels? It's a great question. It really is. And I think that what's interesting is that both teams it seems have tried to pretend that 1974 and 1975 never happened because when Shea Stadium was closing, um, you know, they listed all of the things that, you know, they had all these photo montages and video montages of all these great things that happened at Shea Stadium over the years. And there was really no mention of the Yankees playing there at all. Uh, So uh, the Mets certainly uh, have kind of buried it deep, deep, deep in uh, whatever, 
you know, historical archives they have. Uh, not a lot of memorabilia out there. The one, the couple of things that I thought were were kind of cool, um, you know, in research along the way, and one of which I have a photo of in the book is they did uh, have a big billboard um, in Flushing, Queens, which said which had a Yankee logo, and it said, you know. You know, hey, Yankee fans, welcome to Queens. So uh, that billboard, I'm sure, was thrown away somewhere or destroyed soon after the 75 season. That would be a very cool item to have. There's not a lot of things left that really could have, you know, survived um, because after this, there really was nothing that made the Yankees feel like it was their stadium. You know, they didn't they didn't really uh, – the, the, the one thing the Mets had was a uh, – in center field, which was, I guess, before its time, they used to be able to show slides of uh, players' faces uh, above the big giant scoreboard. In, in later years, it became a clock, um, and it was it didn't do it anymore. Well, I guess once you know things like the video boards came into into that play, so um, they did take the Mets logo off of that and put a Yankee logo up on the days that the Yankees were playing. Um, but yeah, not a lot has has survived, and it's and it's a shame because. Although it certainly wasn't a, you know, golden age for, for either team or for the stadium itself, it would have been nice to have some things. That, the things that re- remain and you can still get on eBay are, you know, ticket stubs. Um, I actually, uh, one of the things I did was when I, um, when I was writing the book, I actually went on eBay and bought a couple of ticket stubs. Just so I had them, you know, it said, you know, you know, Yankees versus Indians, you know, Shea Stadium on a Tuesday night in April or whatever it was, um, because I think that that is something that's that's kind of cool. And th- so those things remain. Uh, the scorebooks are still around, a couple of them at least. And, um, you know, it's, we're talking about 1975 being, what, you know, 43 years ago at this point. So less and less uh, survives. But uh, there are a few things out there. And, and uh, you know, it's... If people, if people have interest in it, they can certainly get their hands on it. And, and hopefully uh, I've told enough decent stories in this book to, to bring back some of the memories. No, it's interesting. And, and again, these, these are, you know, uh, so we do like to uh, tackle, uh, you know, uh, places and palaces uh, that uh, you used to host not only teams and leagues no longer with us, but, uh, you know, teams that are still with us. And, you know, um, and, and Shea obviously has a lot of uh, history uh, for lots of different reasons uh, on the field. But this is an interesting uh, little sidebar to uh, you know, I would. It's 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 hard. I'll stop short of calling Shea a venerable stadium. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, utilitarian, sure. It was uh, uh, convenient uh, to a certain extent, sure. It was uh, modern for its time, yes. It was multi-purpose for sure. Um, I, I you know, I, architecturally, it had a couple of interesting new innovations right at the time uh I, but you know i i don't know many people that sort of look back um I, I guess fondness is probably not the first word that comes in it might make the top five in people's memories right because perhaps they saw the the beatles you know in their first concert or they you know went to their first met or jet game or you know they may ever you know winning the they remember the super bowl season or they remember you know the two world championships of the mets uh in or you know uh where the yeah you know, the 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 playoff runs that uh, just came short. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't know how many people sort of lovingly remember it, uh, you know, as a, as a structure, uh, but the memories within though, uh, certainly a different story. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, Mets fans of a certain age, and you remember, you know, as time goes on, less and less people will have remembered being at Chase Stadium, depending on, on your age. But uh, there was a, this 
feeling of nostalgia um, still for Shea Stadium. I mean, they one of the things they did when they built City Field was they actually left uh, home plate, the pitcher's mound, and all four bases, and not the actual bases, but they've marked those things off, and, and they remain in the parking lot at City Field. So um, I actually, every time I go to a Met game, if not every time, but almost every time, I, I always swing by Shea and, and remember, and, 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 and I'm always amazed at how close it was to City Field. The City Field actually sprouted up over the last couple of years of Shea Stadium. And it's really remarkable when you realize it's, you know, out of context because there's no stadium around it, but how close home plate was to where City Field is now. Uh, it doesn't seem like it, it's that far. But, um, yeah, I think people look back on it. Uh, I think you're right. I think fond is, is, is maybe a strong word. And uh, I don't know that that fond is a strong word in general, but I, I think the, the, the feeling of Met fans towards the end of Shea's days were – um, yeah, it's a dump, but it's our dump. And I think, you know, because of, and you mentioned this, because of some of the things that happened uh, in the mid eighties and the team was so good. And, you know, of course, champ- the championship in 86. And, you know, uh, the thing is for Mets fans, there hasn't been another championship. So, you know, the Mets have never won any place other than Shea stadium. Certainly they, they made it to the world series in 2015 and lost to Kansas city. But, and I think that season kind of made city feel, feel more like, uh, a, a true Mets stadium. But the fact is that the Mets have never won a championship anywhere, but Shea stadium. And until they do Shea stadium will always have this place. Um, and I think it, even when they do it, Shea stadium will always have this place. It wasn't a great place to go watch a game. There wasn't a lot of options to eat at Shea stadium and God forbid you had to go to the bathroom. But the fact was that was a stadium that many people grew up in. And that's the stadium that many people had seen uh, they're based, you know, the first in baseball games in when they were younger. And remember, by 1976, Yankee Stadium was in essence a brand new stadium. So Shea Stadium was the senior stadium uh, in the city, and not necessarily for all good reasons, but it was just that was just a fact. It was so. It's gone. It is. It is remembered today, and I think um, holds certainly a place in in New York baseball and football history. All right, so uh, uh, give us some uh, promotional goodness. Uh, tell us about the book, where you can find it. Oh, you know what? Before we even do that, uh, one I guess one sort of last question. What if, if anybody, I mean, this book recently came out. Does anybody in any of the four franchises, uh, has there been any, um, I don't know, warm uh, memories and uh, come on our podcast or talk about this with us? Or, or has it been, to your point earlier, kind of something we'd rather forget? Thanks thanks for calling. Um, I, from, the, from the franchises themselves? Yeah. So I, I did uh, go on uh, when the book first came out. I was on uh, the Mets have a on the on the well they've just recently changed radio networks. But on the radio network they were on when the book came out, um, they did the the people who did the it wasn't quite the official pregame show, but it was a show that aired on the Mets network. They did, they did have me come on and talk about it. Um, but no, I don't think that. Uh, the Jets and the Giants have totally washed their hands of anything that's ever happened at Chase Stadium, as far as uh, I know. And um, the Mets and Yankees uh, have not have not reached out. I, I have had very kind things from some of the people I spoke to who were around at that time. In other words, Marty Appel, who I interviewed for the book, who was the PR director in 1975, um, had very very nice things to say about the book and was really. I uh, thought I did a good, you know, it said to me that I did a really good job capturing uh, that time period. So to me, that meant a lot because uh, somebody like him who, um, you know, was from the, you know, quote unquote, alien team that was playing at Shea, he was the PR director. 
he's a, a renowned award-winning author himself. So that meant a, a lot to me to have somebody like Marty Appel, uh, speak, uh, so, so highly of my book. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the franchises, um, have kind of forgotten. There's not too many places. You, if you walk through the Mets and Yankees hall of fame, you're not going to see, uh, or the Jets and Giants for that matter, you're not going to see a lot of references to 1975 other than the fact that, you know, Seaver won the Saw Young, Rusty Staub drove in a hundred runs, Catfish Hunter, you know, you know, debuted for the Yankees. But uh, yeah, for the most part, the franchises uh, keep their compliments to themselves. Well, I think it's great. Like, I think this is this is this is really interesting stuff. And, 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 you know, like you say, as people get older and they sort of forget all these little things. But, you know, these are not only trivia questions, but this is part of their histories. Right. And, um, you know, some of it, frankly, speaks to, uh, you know, the, the lack of stadia in, in the New York City metropolitan area at the time and arguably even today. Right. The Jets still ironically now are subtenants in the uh, in the new MetLife Stadium, right? And we're uh, in Giant Stadium for some time as well. And, you know, the, the beginnings of that sort of shared relationship, either by convenience or otherwise, um, you know, and, and the Jets, uh, I'm sure the long-suffering Jets fans, you know, uh, would not like to be reminded of how all that kind of got started, uh, you know, and, and kind of lust for, you know, there was a time, you know, 10, 15 years ago where there was actually an opportunity for a new stadium and you know, all sort of that how that played out. But, you know, the Jets have always been sort of this uh, number two team uh, in the same building, wherever the Giants are, you know, really since this time. Um, so I, it's fascinating. So g- give me um, g- give us a, give us a little bit uh, stuff about the book. Are you going to be promoting it at all uh, where people can find it and um, all that kind of stuff, how they can get in touch with you? Can they follow you on social media? Give us all that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I promote it as much as much as I can, whenever I can, when anybody asks. Um, uh, I've actually had another book come out since this book came out, so I promote that as well. It's called Miracle Moments in New York Mets History. Uh, all of my books, um, and I have four of them, are available on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com and all those those easy places to get uh, books. They make good Christmas and any kind of holiday gifts and Hanukkah gifts and whatever, and birthday gifts. If you have a Mets fan, now this, the thing about this book that's, that's kind of cool is that although none of the four teams really were great that year, it does really, the story is about all of them. Uh, the franchises, but it's also about New York City during 1975 and what was going on in the city and politics and pop culture. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't think of it necessarily as a Mets book. So any of the, the four, you know, no matter who somebody roots for or whether you're not even a fan of the teams, it's kind of a, an interesting little oddity and, and footnote in New York sports history. So, yeah, it's available on all the all the websites. And uh, I do have a, a website as well called TopelMetsBook.com. Well, now, you cannot say that uh, we do not uh, go deep, way deep into the uh, the nooks and crannies of forgotten sports history on this show. And uh, if you're not taking advantage of this and uh, using this to impress your friends uh, at uh, various uh, social functions, well, shame on you. I mean, uh, we, we go, uh, we bend over backwards each and every week to, uh, to give you the arsenal that you need uh, to uh, look and uh, feel intelligent. Uh, about all things sports, and uh, especially those that are of the forgotten variety, uh, for whatever reasons. And uh, this week, hopefully no exception, and uh, we uh, appreciate you listening. And I uh, I learned stuff. I, I, I grew up in the area, in the New York City metropolitan area. I didn't know half of this stuff. And um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ever fascinated by all of it. And uh, 1975 uh, in New York City, uh, interesting and memorable for a number of reasons. And if you're a sports fan, well, there you go. Uh, Shea Stadium for uh, various reasons, not, not necessarily the uh, quality of the teams on the field 
for sure. Um, you can find uh, this fun book. It is a quick and uh, an enjoyable read. It's called When Shea Was Home, the story of the 1975 Mets, Yankees, Giants, and Jets. Brent Topel is the author. Uh, it is published by Sports Publishing. Uh, you can find a, a link uh, to it as well as uh, uh, all kinds of interesting uh, stuff uh, related to this episode, episode number 87, I believe it is, on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Make sure you go there early and often. You want an old episode from the show, by all means, you'll, you'll find them there. Uh, you want to find uh, an easy link uh, to uh, order the uh, book, this one in particular, or any of the others, or any of the other media or items that we discuss or talk about. Uh, you will find that as well on our site. And it's also the place to find all of our uh, social media feeds. If you want to uh, follow us on uh, on Twitter, we're at Good Seat Still. You'll find us on Instagram, of course, at Good Seat Still Available. You will find us uh, on Facebook. There's a page devoted to us there. Uh, there's a newsletter, uh, which we send out each and every weekend, uh, giving our, uh, our inside listeners, if you will, a, a taste of what's uh, to come in the following week. Uh, so you get a little head start on your uh, your weekly listening and podcast downloading. Uh, go on our website for that, too. And, uh, you know, uh, just bookmark it, for God's sakes. And just, you know, keep visiting there early and often. Always uh, updating with new stuff. And uh, hopefully in the, the the new year, 2019, uh, we'll be putting some more stuff up there, like uh, more promotional items and, uh, and the like. Uh, let's see. We also want to say thank you, of course, uh, to our friend Jerry Payne, the good doctor at Podfly Productions, podfly.net. Uh, he helps us uh, produce and get all our fun uh, and exciting pieces together to make somewhat of a coherent interview every week. Uh, we appreciate his help, of course, without which we couldn't do this show. And of course, we can't do the show without you. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we appreciate it to no end. And we interrupt this ending of this show for this important news bulletin. There was something of a doubleheader at New York City's Shea Stadium last night before the Yankees and the California Angels took the field, an artillery detachment from Brooklyn's Fort Hamilton observed the U.S. Army's 200th anniversary with a 21-gun salute. The cannons were loaded with blanks, of course, but close enough to the outfield fence to blast a hole at one point and start a fire at another. Repairs were made in time for the ball game. Final scores, Yankees 6, Angels 4, Army 21, fence nothing. And that's the way it is. Wednesday, June 11th, 1975. This is Walter Cronkite, CBS News. Good night.